children can be dismissed. Well, good morning. I want to mention, just by way of announcement, uh, this Wednesday night, um, Steve and Janie King will be with us. Steve will be sharing some updates about the ministry there and something from the Word. And uh, so we're looking forward to that. So glad to have them with us today uh, and their family. And I get to, uh, always a good time to catch up and fellowship. So be praying for them, and you'll want to make sure you put it in your calendar to be here 7 o'clock Wednesday night as they share what's going on on the mission field. Uh, you have your Bibles. Uh, I want to just invite you to open them back up to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. <clears throat> it's interesting, after the service last week, for those of you who were with us, um, uh, a gentleman came up to me afterwards and said, Pastor Stephen, we're going to go through a study in the book of Genesis, which I said no. Uh, and then shortly after that, someone else came up to me and said, Pastor Stephen, so we're going through John. And, um, and I will just say this, I love the desire here, and, and you have been trained well to, let's not dwell too much on free sermons, let's get back to a book, uh, because I've been asked many times, what book are we going through next? Uh, so we can't go through Genesis and John at the same time. It would be virtually impossible. Uh, so we're going to go through John. All right. As Elijah reminded us, we, we can't uh, stay prolonged in between two decisions. But I think our church would be greatly benefited by a study through the Gospel of John as we come to um, just get a, a, a glance, a reminder of who, Jesus, of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. With that, I want to begin... Um, this morning with uh, another word of prayer. So won't you bow with me, would you? <clears throat> Father, we thank you for um, just the, the time we can come and exalt your name. Lord, the grace and peace that you give to us and the joy which uh, floods our hearts. Lord, we just praise you for that. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this time we can gather together. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would uh, just... Use it this morning and help us, uh, help us with the distractions that we find in our, and we deal with in our minds and as things keep running back and forth. We just pray that you would give us that concentration. Let your spirit work among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me begin by asking you, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That is a significant question. An article from PBS in the late 90s uh, on the search for the historical Jesus as opposed to the Jesus of Christianity or the later early church age uh, made this uh, inquisitive statement I thought was interesting. I will share it with you. It said, Jesus, like the crucifix on which he hangs, is a symbol in the classic sense of the word an empty vessel we can fill with our own multiple meanings. I wonder if you agree with that. Well, I think it is true. It does happen. Unfortunately, Jesus and the crucifixion and what he has done has become one of those kind of empty vessels that you can just fill up with whatever you want uh, to fill it up. Maybe some sentimental historical figure or religious icon. 
Or maybe he's like the big brother Bob who has his act together, and so you need to as well, as the old rock song goes. Others suggest that Jesus is nothing more than just a role model, a political leader, friend of outcasts, revolutionary, and the list could go on and on, couldn't it? Let me put it another way. No other figure in human history has ever changed or shaped our world so dramatically as Jesus of Nazareth. No one has ever garnered such devotion, fostered such hatred as Jesus of Nazareth as well. He is, I think, by all rights, uh, and from the biblical account and, and just the mystery of us searching and trying to figure out who Jesus is, he is the grandest of all mysteries to contemplate this Jesus. The greatest of teachers calls for the highest level of loyalty. And as we see in the New Testament, and especially in the gospel accounts, he is unconquerable. And that should, as we look at the gospel, uh, make us delightful. Well, the four gospel accounts uh, are a picture of Jesus' life and work, his ministry, what he said and what he came to do. They highlight in the pinnacle of the gospels is the passion narratives, which is him coming and and, um, giving his life on the cross and then him being raised from the dead. They are not exhaustive, as you know. John even tells us at the end of his gospel that if everything was written that Jesus did, the the world couldn't contain the books. He's basically saying there's much, much more that could be said. And they're written in a way to remind us, or they're written for our own uh, reminder by eyewitness accounts. We can go to your bookstore, you can Google and and find books on who Jesus is or Jesus of Nazareth or any other uh, title that you want to look. But what you do when you come to the Bible is you find the eyewitness account of those who were with him. God preserving for us uh, who Jesus is so that when we come to understand what we believe or religious icon or many other things we attribute to him, we attribute to him rightly of what he did and what he said and, and who he is. John reminds us of this emphatically in 1 John, his letter, when he says that from which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify and proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was from the Father manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. It's like he just keeps saying the same thing. Every sentence, we've seen him, we've heard him, we've seen him, we heard him, he was manifest to us. And so while we may wonder and, and stand amazed at this Jesus of Nazareth, the Bible gives us the foundation for our understanding of who he is. The Gospels are those records to paint the picture. We know that three of them are very similar. There's a lot of overlap in their narrative accounts. John is unique. 90% of its material is is unique to John himself and to this gospel record. Well, John selectively lays out for us the case of who Jesus is, but he does so with purpose. Turn with me over to the end of the book, and he reminds us the reason why we have this gospel. Chapter number 20, verse 
verse number 31. Let's go to verse number 30, chapter 20. Coming to the conclusion of his gospel account, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, affirming that it's not exhaustive. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And here he sits at the end of the book, really the same thing he sits at the beginning of the book. The reason I'm writing this book is so that you may see Jesus for who he is, and in seeing for who he is, you may believe on him or receive him that you may have from him eternal life. It's the very purpose of the gospel of John. And so he meticulously works through different signs and wonders so that we might see him, receive his message, and have everlasting life. I turn back to John chapter number 1. We'll look at this section together. What is it that John wants us to see of Jesus? I think verse 14 gives us the clue or gives us the answer. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is John's intention through writing the Gospel of John and I would say the other Gospel writers as well so that we might see the glory of who Jesus is. That we might see him in his majesty, in his complexity, that in his beauty, in his honesty, in his powerfulness, in his mercy, in his compassion, all of that pointing and bringing us to this place so that we may behold with our eyes, or at least the eyes of our mind, the beauty and glory and wonder of who Jesus Christ is. That should be the intent of all of our gatherings together in some way or another, that we want to see him, behold him, and enjoy or see the beauty of who he is, the glory of Christ. And he does this through several ways in this opening chapter, which we'll see fleshed out throughout the Gospel of John. And he does so first by showing us the glory of Christ demonstrated in his eternal existence. Notice the first few verses with me. This Jesus of Nazareth, who became flesh and dwelt among us, well, he began differently. I mean, there's something else about him that he says in the opening of this that we seen last week. And he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, don't miss what he's going on about here in the first part of this when you get later on in him walking and leaning on a well. It's such a contrast. And he's saying this Jesus of Nazareth, his, his beginnings was from everlasting. That he is divine, that he is with God, he is of the same substance of the Father. That here is the eternal one who is, uh, this is what the gospel is all about. God, the very one who in the beginning created all things, speaking of his deity in verse number 3. Now verses 1 and 2 and the rest of this are are helpful for us and, and help kind of cultivate what we come to understand about the doctrine of the Trinity. He's saying that Jesus is not just a manifestation of God, a different kind of form God took when he, when he decided to show himself in one way, but, but Jesus was always with God. Not Jesus the human, you know that, but the second person of the Trinity. That with the Father there was another 
presence, there was another person, and that is the Word, the eternal Word. And so the Bible can say there is but one God sharing the same essence and glory, and yet there are two distinct people. And so John wants us to understand at the very beginning of this and all throughout this that Jesus was no mere mortal man. It's important for us to know this because it it really brings us to greater devotion and understanding when we see Jesus doing what Jesus did. It's one thing to see someone who just has a soft heart for people to do things. It's another thing to see someone who is God himself lower himself to do the things that he has done. So he wants us to understand, to elevate our mind and understand that that the glory of Christ cannot be seen simply in the virgin birth, though it's there and evident in the other Gospels, but it's seen in the very shared glory with the Father before the ages began. And throughout the ages, through the creation, throughout the ages until the time in which he took on flesh, he was enjoying the presence of, of angels worshiping and adoring him. This is who Jesus is. He wants you to see that, and he wants me to see that, Something of that. He created all things, verse number three. Without him, not anything was made that was made. Many New Testament passages speak to Jesus in his creative work. Notice also he attributes in verse number four, not only was he creator of all things, but in him, in Christ, was life. In Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. Pointing back to creation owes the very life-giving Power in creation owes its origins in Jesus. In this one with whom John is trying to get us to see. But not only in his deity does he declare the glory of Jesus for us, but he declares it in his coming. He does that in two ways. One, in verse number five, in more of a kind of philosophical argument, if you want to talk about it like that. And in the second way, we'll look at in his humility but notice verse number five he describes jesus in this fashion as light which shines in the darkness light shines in the darkness and the darkness have not overcome it again reiterating there was a man sent from god verse number six whose name was john he came to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world. Saying, Jesus has come not just as uh, not just seen in his deity, but his glory is seen in his his description of being light, being light of the world. Now you know that light and darkness is almost seems to be in conflict in the the book of John, the Gospel of John. You see. Reference made to both Jesus affirming that he is the light of the world. Later on in the gospel chapter, darkness always depicting uh, several different things. One of the wickedness and immorality and the violence and the demonic activity of the world. Sinfulness at its, at its height. And we need, not, we need not have too much of imagination to say that our world is morally bankrupt and living in darkness presence of evil all around it we were studying in john's uh, upper room discourse speaking about judas this last friday and it's it's by no mistake i don't think at the end of that when it says judas went out immediately of the upper room and the bible says and it was night 
small passing, but it's a reminder of the darkness which which are the days in which Jesus came. It was our darkness. And in our dark world, in our dark society, with uh, birth out of not only satanic activity, but the, the human depravity, that is the darkness which the light has come to shine. But it's not only speaking about that or not only a reference to that, but it's also a reference to our ignorance and our spiritual blindness. Now, you may not like those two words. I don't either. I never liked the idea of being ignorant or someone making you feel ignorant. But this is where humanity is. And this is what God has done. He has sent light into the world so that we may not be blind and be ignorant about certain things. What are those things? Well, one is that we may not be ignorant about God himself. You know, we as... Just normal people, our, our history and our heritage, some of you can trace it all the way back to where you came from and where your family came from and, and all the way back. Well, well, the truth is we, we trace our heritage all the way back to the point of where we were all worshiping wood and trees and rocks and living by our ignorance and our blindness to the reality of God. We were idolaters. We conveyed or construed some kind of image, some kind of God, which was not true. Jesus' coming, and we see here in verse number 18, his coming was to bring light, to bring understanding, knowledge, to open the eyes of the blind so that we might know who God is. Notice, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has declared He has shown him. He has brought him forth. Jesus coming into the world, removing any shadow of doubt or false notion of who God might be so that we may know him. To expose us to the reality and the presence and the truthfulness of who God is. To put it the other way, to know God is to know Christ. To know Christ is to know the Father. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. So he's come and light into the world so they will not not be blind and in spiritual darkness and in ignorance so that we might know who God is. But that light also does something else, doesn't it? It exposes us to know who we are. And just like when you turn the light on, it doesn't make your room a mess. Your room was already a mess. The light just exposed it, right? And some of you laugh because you feel like that's your room. Just keep the lights off and go around bumping things. It makes you feel better, right? But that's exactly what mankind has done. At being exposed to Christ, they'd rather turn the light off and keep bumping into stuff because it makes them feel better. And you say, where'd you get that? Well, John 3. Turn with me there and we'll look at it together. And we know 3.16, and we'll look at that and, and... Time as it comes, but just briefly, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A beautiful verse. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Again, this idea of light, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because. Why? 
Now, I know as a kid, I hated the darkness. There's times I'm still not very big fan of it. It's one of our fears, right? We want to light on nightlight and all that other stuff that glows in the dark so we can feel better as you go to sleep. But he says humanity as a whole, mankind, especially demonstrated in the people of his day that people love darkness rather than light. They rejected him. They pushed him away in his truth, his word, his teaching because their deeds were evil. Because they loved their deeds or they loved their esteem or they loved their facade rather than loving Christ and the message which Christ came to bring. The light in itself is exposing us. Not only teaching us who God is, but it is a understanding to know who we are. The light always does that. And for some, like the Samaritan woman, being exposed to one's life and one's history, you come towards Christ. And for others, that exposure is a rejection, a hatred towards the light. You may know that when you went to school, right? You didn't like the person who did all the work they were supposed to do made all the good grades and made all the right choices while you didn't. I'm talking to probably a third of you. The rest of you were that good person in school, but you disliked them. You made fun of them. You called them names. That's silly, isn't it? But that's our human nature. Standing beside the reality of Christ and what he wants us to see about Jesus is not only exposing us to the Father, but it is by necessity an exposure to ourselves. But thirdly, a lie coming into the world so that we might not live in ignorance about ourselves. And Jesus telling the Pharisees, had he not come, then the Pharisees would have had a cloak over their sin. They would have been able to hide their sin, but now they can't hide it. It has also come to teach us and give us light to salvation. You know, Jesus is famous his words of, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself over and over, not just telling us the things that are wrong, not just telling us who the Father is, but bringing us to this knowledge of salvation. Well, such is the glory that we find in, in him being the light of the world. But notice also the glory which seen is in his humility. Verse number 14. Now and the word became what? The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. God. The son. The second person of the trinity. Took upon himself. Human flesh. In such a way to where he could be touched. And seen and heard. You remember John. First John 1. That he could display the emotions of weeping at a friend's funeral before his grave. Now some say that was more of a cry of anger against death. We'll look at that later on. But you see the emotional content. He was tired. He was hungry. All of the attributes of humanness. Except for sin. He became flesh. The gospel story in John's gospel is that we see the glory of Christ in his magnificence and his glory with the Father and his deity and his glory and what he's came to do in our lives as far as our spiritual blindness and opening our eyes, but but also in, in the glory of his humanness, his humanity. And him walking the dirt roads and him living the way he lived and him ultimately in the apex of things taking on humanity to 
to dying for our sins. I disagree with those who doubt uh, or who claim the church has kind of lifted up Jesus above the flesh and bone Jesus of Palestine in those days. In fact, once a month on Sunday night, we celebrate the reality of his flesh and bones because he took that flesh, he, took, he, he became human so that you and I might have everlasting life, a body so that we might live. Now, the Gospel of John teaches us all these things, and so does the other Gospels. As we have said, this is a message about Jesus that we might behold the glory of Jesus. Not so that we can fill our thoughts, whatever we want to about him, by sentimentalism or whatever else there may be that we find. But what he says in, in this opening prologue is it really matters. Jesus matters. The fact that he came matters. What he did matters. It, it matters to me. It matters to you sitting here this morning. It matters to you whether you believe in Jesus, whether you're following him. It matters to you uh, if you don't. It matters to the people sitting out wherever they're sitting this morning or having a, a recovering from last night. Whatever it is, what we come to find out, the reality, the message of Jesus matters to everyone. No one is exempt from its impact, its significance, or the need of it. As he said, I... Steve will be sharing Wednesday night about pastoral training and all the other things that they're involved in. And, and what they're involved in is the very same thing that we see here. That is to declare the glory of Christ because it matters. It's not just random facts that we take in that we know, but it is meant to have an impact on our life. It really is important there is no greater message to consider, no greater other person to ponder. And this is one of the reasons why we're going through the study, so that we may again be refreshed by it. It matters. Now, he's writing this, as we've already seen, so that we might believe. So if you want to look at this in the sense of he wants you to see Jesus, the glory of Christ, he wants you to see it in such a way so that you may respond to it. And we all respond to it in some way or another, don't we? The world, wherever Christ is preached, responds, we might say, in many different ways. But John says, really, in just two. That's good for us because it keeps it simple, doesn't it? It keeps preachers like us, from, like me, from messing it up and making it complicated. When I first uh, started walking with the Lord after I got out of the military and my pastor, Brother Rick Benoy. We called everybody brother at that time, so uh, it's not cultish. It's what the Baptists do, brother so-and-so. Anyway, just giving you some history. So he told me, because I was asking, where do you read? Where do you begin this thing? You know, it's a big book. How many of you ever felt that way? Years in, where do you start? And he said, brother, I'm not going to try to imitate him. I want to, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, he said start in the gospel of John because he wants you to believe in Jesus and know him over a hundred times the gospel refers to faith or belief in an action 
He's saying that, that the gospel, the reality of Christ and the message of Christ is to garner a response. The desire of the, the apostle in writing this and, and the desire of the preacher that stands up and preaches it or the teacher that teaches it or you that share it to a neighbor is that that response would be in faith. So that we would see Christ and that we would worship and admire him, love him, and follow him. But it is that order, isn't it? We have to see it first. We have to see him, know something of him. We have to understand who he is and, and understand what the gospel message is. And therefore, we can respond appropriately. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this saying when someone is loud and a little obnoxious or maybe, what's the word I'm thinking of? Outgoing, let's say. And so some admiring person of them will come to you and just tell you, well, they're loved or hated but never ignored. Some of you think children are like that just because their presence are always felt. I say that in some way just jesting a little bit, but what you see in the reality of Jesus is something of that. Never ignored. Notice with me the response that he mentions here in verse number uh, verse number 10, we'll go back to verse number 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It's like being the owner of the company and visiting the company, and no one knows you're the owner. Anyway, he goes on and shows the response. That is bad enough, but notice what he says next in verse number 11. He came to his own and his own people. Now wait for a moment before we look at the rest of that verse. You know what it says. But, but consider this, a people that was anticipating the Messiah. They were waiting for him. They were making up stories what it would be like when the Messiah come. They were waiting for this kind of kingdom come sort of mentality. They were anticipating. They had the Old Testament which constantly reminded them that he would send a king, a son of David. That he would come and all that he would do and fulfill. And this Messiah when he comes, what does he find? Give us another one. Give us somebody else. We don't like this option. It says coming to his own people. We can see him coming into the world. Half of the world don't know what they're looking for. But, but his own people were anticipating him. And he says in verse number 11, he came to his own people and his own people did not. What is your Bible saying? His own people rejected him. They did not receive him. That is seen all throughout John's gospel, but nothing so profound and so ultimate as in the sense of Jesus' crucifixion as the Sanhedrin are bartering with Pilate on what to do with Jesus. And so Pilate trying to get out of the thing, you know, as we try to get out of hard decisions, said, well, I got this thief and a murderer, or I got Jesus, which one do you want me to release? And they said, give us who? The leaders of Jesus' day made their choice. Give us a thief and a murder, anybody but Jesus. But you don't understand, Jesus healed people. Raised people from the dead. Cast out demons. He did some good stuff. And yet they say, give us the murderer and the robber. 
And this is climaxed in this, this bold statement when Pilate asked, what do you want me to do with Jesus? They said, crucify him. I don't care what you do. Just put him to death. And Pilate says, well, should I kill your king? And the words which flew from the Jews' mouths, which would have never flew from a Jewish person's mouth, and their sane right mind says, we have no king but Caesar. Showing us the ultimate rejection of Jesus' day. And that doesn't mean that thousands of Jews were not saved and converted to Christ. And even some of the Pharisees and others, we know that to be the case in the Bible. But as a whole, the nation suffered greatly, A.D. 70, and all the ramifications for rejecting their Messiah. I don't want to say that Jesus is still rejected in our day, isn't he? You may not be standing before Pilate, but when the gospel is preached, when it's given out, when it's shared, Jesus is still mocked. He's still met with indifference. He's still met with intolerance and hatred and rejection. In some sense, just by the simple idea of dismissing it, is by default rejecting it. And how patient the Lord of glory is with us. I was thinking about that this morning. How many times I heard the gospel of Christ? How many times I heard Jesus preached and, and people encouraged me to believe in Jesus? And how often I'm like, eh, not today. How patient and loving and kind he was. But I want to just remind you, and you may be there this morning. You may have heard Jesus preached and, and talked about and what he came to do to bring salvation. You may have heard this over and over. It's just like you could finish the sentences And yet you still have not received him. But can I remind you that the sun, the same sun that warms the earth, hardens the clay. And the callousness and the hardness of your heart continually rejecting Christ grows increasingly. I want to just encourage you that if you've not followed him, if this is how you've you've responded to him, even this morning God has brought you here to a place to hear again Jesus is coming to the world and he's coming to the world to be received. And today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Now is the moment. Now is the time to believe. And that is the alternative response, isn't it? In the verse found in front of us, there are many who reject him. Still to our day, his own people rejected him. Verse number 12, he says, But to all who did receive him, don't you like that beginning word? It says contrast. <laughs> this is true for some. This is true for many. We see in the Bible tells us and that broad is the path that leadeth to destruction. Many be thereon. But, but that isn't the only way. That isn't the only news. He says, but a transition, a contrast to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. What was the message of Jesus meant to do? Is meant to be received. Is meant to be believed. He is meant to be received. What does it mean to receive Jesus? It simply means what he says here. He restates it for our own clarity. To receive him is to receive his message. To receive the truth about him. What he says about himself is to receive the truth of what he says about God. And what he says about the world is to receive the truth of what he says about how we're to live in the world. And, and to, to own those things as being not only true, but receiving them for yourself. It is, in essence, he goes on, not only to receive him, 
but to believe on his name. And it's to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The message is about faith, believing. is about trusting. Not to make Jesus out of something he is not or to... Uh, to mystify him or devotionalize him or whatever we else might want to do, but to believe, to see and hear and trust and follow him is more than just a sense of understanding, though there must be a simple sense of understanding who Jesus is, but we shouldn't complicate it because even children can understand the gospel message, right? And the reason I say it's worth pointing this out is because many of you maybe if not a lot of you, have been raised in church and you know those simple things that we're meant to understand. But it's more than just understanding the facts. It is understanding with agreement. It is acknowledging something is true and right and, and following after him. It's a trust and lean. A trust and leaning on him which impacts our life. There used to be a song You've heard sung many times, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And John is writing to his world in maybe the early 90s, somewhere in that time, the last gospel record to be written. And he's writing to a world so that they might see the glory of Christ and in seeing him that they may love him, may follow him, may believe in him and on his name. And really that's the main application for all of us. I struggle with a passage like this because you want to give me five things to do. And John doesn't. He says, Jesus is one to behold, to know, to understand, and to trust. To believe. Well, let me give you one last point and we'll come to a conclusion. I respond to Jesus of what we see of him is so that we might have something from him, namely himself. But notice he goes on in verse number 12. But to all who did receive on, receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood nor the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He's simply reminding us that what Jesus has come to do, what he gives to us, to those who believe, is is salvation. This is what we use in the Christian sense of the term. You need to be saved. How many of you ever heard that? Need to be born again. That's what the passage here refers to. And this, this kind of encompasses everything. But what does that mean? Well, it means several things. Let me just point out a few for you. John 3, going back to John 3, if you will. It means Jesus has come so that you and I might have everlasting life. That's pretty simple to understand, isn't it? What kind of life? Eternal life. Verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. There's the idea of perishing. And so to keep from perishing, to, to be the alternative to perishing, is to have everlasting life, eternal life. And Jesus has come, and what we receive when we receive him is eternal life. 
In this sense, he means a life which is not subjected to be, to be destroyed, to be condemned, to be judged, to be damned by God. A life which once was living in condemnation, once at enmity with God, once at, at, at friction and frustration, once bearing the wages of sin, what the Bible says in Romans, right? He, he says this life who once was living like that through faith in Jesus Christ now has an imperishable, everlasting life. And just as Jesus' own life is unconquerable, we see that by the resurrection of the dead, so all who put their faith and trust in Jesus will have an unconquerable life. What a promise and gift. And in faith in Christ and through the gospel, you and I might not perish. But perish isn't the idea of what we come to think about in our modern terminology of annihilation. Perishing, you just kind of go through and you're done. As awful as that in itself may be. But it's bearing under the weight of the wrath of God for eternity because of our lawlessness and our rejection of Him. He says the solution, the gift that is found to meet that dreaded judgment is in the grace and truth the gift that comes from jesus christ in receiving him you see the solution that you might never perish you know beloved how we can we can be scared about a lot of things can you admit that can we be honest a couple of you And there's times where the idea of judgment and other things are terrifying. They ought to be. It's a sober thing. What John is saying, don't you understand? Jesus came so that at the thought of our death, as fearful as it might be, that we can face it with certainty and confidence because of Christ and that everlasting unconquerable life he gives to us. Therefore, there is now no what to those who are in whom. You see, this is what he is hoping that we might have. Everlasting life. John 10.10 speaks about this. No need to turn there. I'll quote it for you. That famous statement as he's speaking about the good shepherd and the quality care that he has for his sheep and giving his life for the sheep. He says, he says they will have an abundant life. I like that. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And it's secured because of our Savior. But I want to mention thirdly with that what we have, not only everlasting, unconquerable life, abundant life, but what he mentions here in verse number uh, 12 and 13 is that he has come so that we might have a restored life. So that you and I might not live alienated from God. And there is this kind of notion where we might say, well, God has kind of cleaned the slate. So God and I are not at, you know, we're kind of on speaking terms. We're not at odds with each other. But, but that's kind of about it. We kind of just kind of cleared it all off. And that's not what the Bible teaches. That, that what Christ brings to us is a restoration of fellowship and belonging to God which was lost in the Garden of Eden. 
Adam who walked with God and or God walking with Adam in the cool of the day was cast out of Eden, which was a mercy act of God. But it is here in Christ that we find that, that, that belonging and embrace restored. Notice he says in verse number 12, but all who did receive him, who believe on his name, he gave the right. And some translations say power. You might think of this. He gave the right or the privilege to become children of God. How do you become a child of God? Through Jesus. Not only just kind of clearing the slate where you and God are not mad at each other. But he is bringing you into his home. It is through Christ that we have the right, the, the privilege, the, the, the ability that is not inherent by our own nature, but inherent in Christ, which he gives to us as we receive him, as we come to him, to, to call on God as our heavenly father in time of need. That's what the, the Bible says, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. It's through Christ which he, he gives to us in his death, burial, and resurrection. And, and the gospel in saving us brings us into his family so that we might stand confident claiming the promises of his goodness and grace towards us. Don't you think it's bold to look at some of the promises in the New Testament and say, that's mine? If you, if you haven't ever thought that, then, then you've missed the promises. God's saying, if He give us grace, He'll give us all things, meet all of our needs, bring us into glory, share an inheritance, give us the kingdom. Not only forgiving our sins, never to bring them up. That in of itself is remarkable because I can't quit forgetting my sins. And yet, we can claim all of those bold promises because of Jesus. Because in receiving Christ, we receive all the blessings and goodness that Christ offers to his people. In rejecting Christ, we reject all of those things. And we affirm that those are not ours. You see, he's writing to a world that they might see the glory and splendor of Christ. That, that in seeing him, that they may respond, not as many in the world respond, but as... Others have in receiving and receiving. We receive not only Christ, but all things that are his are ours. The restoration of being with the father. You know, let me just say this. Men mentioned food and fellowship. That is so true, isn't it? Isn't that how that always works out? So bring food and we'll fellowship, right? But even our fellowship with one another is given to us as a glorious gift of God's grace through Jesus. Otherwise, why would you be here? <laughs> you see, he has come not just so that we might have an unconquerable, everlasting life, eternal life, but he has come so that we might be restored to the Father. So that we might, with all boldness and all right, be able to say, Abba, Father, my Father, and claim all those promises that he has offered us to his word, through his word. And let me just come to a conclusion here. Well, the first conclusion is, have you seen him? Do you know him? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? As the greatest question 
that you'll ever answer, the most significant question that you'll ever answer. It's like this knowledge of who Jesus is, what he's come to do, all throughout the pages of the New Testament and the Gospels and, and all the explanation and the preaching and the sharing, all of that is great and needful, but have you put your faith in, have you received him yourself? And those of you who have received him, we need to continue to see him. We need to continue to be reminded of who he is. I was thinking the other day, was a, I was praying and trying to decide where to go and the gospel stood out because much of my prayer was, was gathered around the accounts in the gospel message, how it taught me about God and who Jesus was and what he's come to do. How that has informed not only my prayer life, but many other things that we have. Have you received him? If you receive him, do you still, you still gaze upon him? And worship and adoration. But thirdly, I would think in conclusion, if that is the message of the gospel, which it is, it ought to be the message of our lives, the message of our church, the need for our families, the need of our families and our community to show, to model, to declare, to share, to speak of Jesus Christ to a world who desperately needs to believe and belong. Well, with that, bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together. We thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that light has come into darkness and darkness has not overcome it. Lord, I just pray that you would just let this uh, brief reminder this morning be an encouragement, at least to whet our appetite as we look in this gospel narrative of who Jesus is, what he's came to do. And Lord, I pray that in that glance, as Paul told us, as we behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces, we're being changed from one level of glory to the next. I pray that would be the case for everyone here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.